I want you to understand this morning that there is a cost for being a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, if we confess that we are indeed disciples and invite others to follow us too. You see, last week we saw Jesus send out the 12 to do what he did and say what he said. That is, to preach the gospel that people should repent. And so they went out, preaching repentance, casting out demons, healing the sick. But one thing I did not point out last week is this is another of Mark's famous intercalations. I've been calling them sandwiches. You know, where he starts a story and he interrupts it to tell another story and then he finishes the first story. He does this all over his book and I've told you that he actually does it because there are related themes in the two stories, either similarities or or contrasts. So in this one, Mark tells of Jesus sending out the 12, then he finishes the story in the middle of Mark chapter 6, verse 30, where we read, the apostles, that is those sent, gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. I think we should be on the next slide there. There we go. They go out and, and, and then they come back. But, but the in-between story, it is the account of the martyrdom of, Jesus, uh, of John the Baptist. How does this relate to Jesus sending out the twelve to do his work? Because there was a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. That is, if you confess him and invite others to follow him too. If you decide to be a sent one, to join him in the work, to take his message of the gospel, which includes repentance, that is the need to confess and to turn from your sin, you do that and it will cost you. You see, people don't like being told that they are sinners, that they need a savior. There is a sense in which this sandwiched today, this, this in-between story is the story of the first martyr of Jesus, specifically for calling out sin. And there have been many since. Name the name of Jesus, share His truth, the hope of the gospel, the need to repent, and it will cost you maybe even your life. Truth is, it's costing brothers and sisters around the world today. And that evangelical bubble in which uh, we have lived seems to be diminishing. As we heard the song, America, God shed His grace on thee, and we have turned our backs on that grace. But it will separate the professors from the possessors. He is sending out uh, us out with His message. Will we speak for Christ even when it is no longer popular to do so, even if it costs you. Our text today is found in Mark chapter 6 in our continuing study of this book. It's, it's a rather long text, but we really can't divide it as one story. So we will just read it as we come to it in the narrative. Very simply, we're going to follow this outline. We're going to see Herod's response to Jesus and then Herod's rejection of John. Again, I'm I'm just going to tell the story, the story of the martyrdom of John the Baptist. 
this forerunner of the Messiah. And it, and it serves to illustrate the rising opposition to Jesus and also closes out the last chapter of this prophet's life. It reminds us, if you're a follower, you decide to follow Jesus, and to proclaim it, you will be opposed, just like John, and just like Jesus. You remember, because I have emphasized it, that Mark's primary purpose is to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But, but while I've mentioned it, I have not emphasized who Mark's first readers were. You may remember when I first introduced the book, I suggested that Mark was writing to Roman Christians who were suffering persecution for their faith. He actually writes to encourage them. He, he tells them this first follower of Jesus suffered, and Jesus will suffer the same. So followers, suffer with Him. It's worth it. He is, after all, the Christ, the Son of God. Let's begin by looking at Herod's response to Jesus. It's a rather curious one found in chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. Read along with me. And King Herod heard of it, heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah, and others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. This kind of catches us off guard. This is the first time that we hear that John the Baptist is, is dead. We, we met him back in chapter 1 where he's introduced as the forerunner, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Messiah. Our text today is, is one of only two stories in, in the entire gospel of Mark that isn't specifically about Jesus. And both of those stories are about John the Baptist here and in chapter 1. And again, in that first chapter, John bursts on the scene. But, but we're, left, we're left in verse 14 with, a, with the troubling words, after John had been taken into custody. And now Mark finishes John's story. Why had he been taken into custody? Because it will cost you to share the good news of Jesus. Here we see Herod heard about Jesus, perhaps through what Jesus had been doing, maybe since it follows right on the heels of Jesus sending out the twelve, maybe he was hearing about them. Regardless, Jesus' teaching and miracles had become well known by this point. As a result, some were saying, he's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Again, that's a bit curious. Why would they say that? Well, likely because John had been quite popular with the people. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus uh, says that this is the reason that John the Baptist had been arrested and imprisoned by Herod. It was because of his popularity. Maybe uh, there, there's going to be an insurrection. And now Jesus comes along with that same popularity, actually even greater. Maybe Jesus is a resurrected John. Of course, we know that Jesus and, and John were... Uh, were, were contemporaries. Uh, the people probably knew that as well. Maybe they were saying that Jesus has the spirit of J John, much like uh, Elisha had the 
spirit of Elijah. Some were saying he's John the Baptist risen from the dead. How else can he do these miracles? This is, this is supernatural. He must be a ghost. How else could he do these miraculous things that he's doing? Others were suggesting that he's Elijah. Based on the prophecy found in Malachi chapter 3, that Elijah would come before the Messiah. Do you see that? Do you see what they missed here? The truth is, Elijah had come in the person of John the Baptist, not literally Elijah. We don't believe in reincarnation, but, but John came in the spirit of Elijah to announce the way of the Messiah, who was Jesus. They missed it. Others were suggesting he's a prophet. Like one of the prophets of old, why would they do that? Well, uh, th those Old Testament prophets, we haven't seen them for about 400 years, but he came dressed like an Old Testament prophet. He came eating like those Old Testament prophets, and he came preaching like those guys. They knew he was a prophet. And now this Jesus comes preaching the very same message. What was the message? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, Herod... Hears about Jesus, and he's convinced that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. Because you see, Herod is feeling a little guilty. Why? Well, that brings us to our second point, Herod's rejection of John the Baptist. It's verses 17 to 29. It's a long section, but I think it'll keep your attention. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias therefore had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed. But he used to enjoy listen, uh, listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And, and the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went in and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. That's sweet. When the disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body. And laid it in a tomb. Because, you see, it costs something to be a follower of Jesus. And to proclaim the need of repentance in order 
to receive him. I've said it this way over and over. I will continue to say it this way. There must be bad news before there can be good news. The bad news is you are rebellious sinners and you are in need of a Savior. The good news is God himself has provided the Savior in the person of Jesus. People don't like being told they're sinners. They never like it. They think they're just fine as they are. They aren't. You aren't. Let's meet the characters in this particular story. Again, many suggest John, we'll start with him, was the last of the Old Testament prophets. His job was to announce the coming of the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His message was quite familiar, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And for John, it didn't matter whether the hearers were among the Jewish ruling party or the religious elite. It didn't matter whether uh, his hero was a soldier carrying out Roman law or a, or a puppet king carrying out Roman orders. The message was always the same, repent. It doesn't matter who you are. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This prophet would even name the sin which needed repentance. I know that we don't do that anymore. He did. Religious leaders, you brood of vipers, turn from your hypocrisy. Tax collectors, don't cheat the people. Don't collect more than is appropriate. Soldiers, stop extorting people. Don't take money by force. And everybody, stop accusing anyone falsely. Political leader, King Tyrant, uh, excuse me, King uh, Tetrarch, you are living in adultery. It is not lawful for you to have this woman that you have. And it was that last one that resulted in his being taken into custody, confined to a dungeon. It was that last one that would cost him his life. This specific dungeon, dark, cold, deep, foul, was located beneath a magnificent palace at Macarus. Located seven miles east of the, kind of the north end of the Dead Sea, archaeological excavations there reveal walls where prisoners were chained. uh, 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 chained. Most did not make it out alive. They they died, often alone, forgotten. How did John end up here? Well, let's meet the other characters of the story. There are specifically three others who we meet. By the way, this story is more sordid than any soap opera you've ever seen or heard. It's a story of infidelity, divorce, remarriage, incest, political intrigue, jealousy, spite, revenge, lewdness, lust, cold-heartedness, cruelty, brutality, and violence. In fact, one commentary suggests these three make for fascinating studies in deviant psychology. What, What young teenage girl would ask for the head of a man on a plate. This particular story is a subject of many Middle Ages paintings. I would show one to you, but they are far too gruesome. The next character we meet is this King Herod. He wasn't actually a king, you understand. It's what he wanted to be. Matthew rightly calls him a tetrarch, one of, of four rulers. You see... This Herod was one of the many sons of Herod the Great. 
Herod the Great was the first of the Herods and, and ruled Israel under the authority of Rome. He came to power around 40 B.C. and ruled until about 4 B.C., right after Jesus was born. He was given the title King of the Jews by the Roman Senate, even though he wasn't himself a Jew. Politically gifted, able administrator, harsh ruler. He loved power and opulence. He levied heavy taxes on the people. And he was not, frankly, a very nice guy. He became incredibly paranoid, especially near the end of his life. Right before he died, he had one of his wives, he had many, and two of his sons executed, along with several of his close associates. He actually left instructions for hundreds of Jewish leaders to be killed when he died just to make sure that there would be mourning at his death. This is the guy who had all of the male babies under the age of two murdered in Bethlehem in Matthew 2, trying to kill the Messiah, you see, the rightful king of the Jews. When Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided between four sons, three of whom were over the area of uh, Palestine or Israel. Uh, there was Herod the second up, up to the north, and then Arche Archelaus to the south where Jerusalem and Ju Judea were. And then there is this Herod Antipas, who was the tetrarch of Galilee, where Nazareth was, Capernaum was, and it was a tetrarch of Perea right in the middle. This Herod Antipas is the Herod that we're talking about here. By Mark 6, he's been reigning for just over 30 years. This, by the way, is the same Herod to whom Pilate sent Jesus after his arrest when he heard that Jesus was a Galilean. I'll send you to your ruler. Herod Antipas lived primarily in Tiberias, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's Interesting to note that in all of his ministry, Jesus never visited Tiberias, not that we read of, even though he was within walking distance of Tiberias from Capernaum. He did miracles all around the area, but he seemed to steer clear of Tiberias and Herod. In addition to Tiberias, Herod also had a palace, in, as I mentioned, in Machaerus, seven miles east of the northern end of the Dead Sea. It was kind of a, kind of a summer palace for him, and Josephus tells us that it was there that this story of John the Baptist takes place. We're not, we're not sure whether it took place here or the, the party was thrown uh, so far away. Underneath this opulent palace, deep down on the ground, was this dungeon. And it was there that John the Baptist was kept for about a year now. The, the next person that we meet is this... Lady Herodias, you begin to think they could have come up with some different names. Try to keep up with this. It gets really confusing and frankly quite disgusting. Herod the Great actually had more than three sons, most of them named Herod. And in addition to these three who ruled, he also had a, a son named Aristobulus. Most of these guys were half-brothers since Herod the Great had about ten wives so Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias. She married her uncle, Herod Philip I. Together they had a daughter named Salome. She's the one who does the sexual dance in this story. 
So Herodias marries her uncle Philip, still with me. But one day while she's visiting her uncle Herod Antipas, he seduces her. They agree to get a divorce from their respective spouses and marry each other. Now, at this time, Herod Antipas had been married to the daughter of King Aretas of modern-day Jordan, just on the other side of Perea there. In fact, it's interesting that Josephus tells us shortly after this, King Aretas went to war against Herod Antipas for um, dumping his daughter, and he kicked Herod's butt. And most of the people were saying that Herod lost, this was God's judgment for killing John the Baptist. Well, the last character, of course, is this daughter of Herodias named Salome. At this time, she's probably 12 or 14 years of age. You might be interested to know that when she grew up, um, she married her great-uncle, Herod Philip II, uh, the Tetrarch, making her both the aunt and sister-in-law to her own mother. Follow all that? I am my own grandpa. (laughs) This is one very sick family. John thought so too, which is why he denounced Herod Antipas' wedding uh, to to his brother's wife, Herodias. So you have that as a background. Herodias divorces one, un- uh, one uncle and brother to marry another uncle and brother. No biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage, just lust and disgust. Leviticus 18 says that you can't do that. So John rightly condemns their marriage as unlawful against the law of Moses. The language in the Greek is such that he, he condemned it. He spoke out against it over and over again. And don't miss that verse 18 says that he said it directly to Herod himself. Herod, you can't do this. This is against, this is, this John the Baptist has some serious moxie. All that began the chain of events that lead to his death. Because of his denunciation of their illicit relationship, John is arrested, bound, and in prison. And by the time we get to Mark chapter 6 again, he's probably been there for about a year. Herodias was a spiteful and bitter woman. She wanted John put to death because of his audacity in decrying their illicit marriage. But Matthew tells us that Herod was afraid of the people who saw John as a prophet. I want you to get that. Herod is scared of the people who saw John as a prophet. Fear seemed to be a problem for Herod. You see, we read in our text that he was also afraid of John, knowing John to be a righteous and holy man. Don't miss that. He knew that John was right. He knew that John's message of repentance was right. In fact, he becomes interested in what John has to say. He actually enjoys talking to him, spends time with him, but the message perplexes him. It wasn't enough, you see, to cause him to turn from his sin. I should camp here just a bit. I want to say to you that just being intrigued by the message is not the same as accepting the message. Some of you need to hear that. You see, later when Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, Herod is intrigued again. Luke tells us he's been wanting to meet Jesus for some time, but remember he steered clear of Tiberius, and, but he's been wanting to meet Jesus for some time to see Jesus do a sign, do a trick, Jesus. 
Jesus remained silent, so Herod clothed him with a purple robe, had him beaten and sent back. Do you understand that this Herod met the forerunner of the Messiah, and he met the Messiah himself? But he was so committed to his sinful rebellion against God, he never repented. He never turned, being intrigued by the message, coming here week after week and listening like Herod did with John is not the same as receiving the message of grace. Herod is a fearful man, afraid of the crowds. He's afraid of John. And we find that he's also afraid of his dinner guests and what they might think. The guests were a veritable who's who of Galilean aristocracy. A strategic or opportune, perfect day came. Opportune for Herodias. It was Herod's birthday, so he threw himself a huge party and he invited everybody who was anyone, lords, military commanders, leading men. These were political and, and, and military and, and social leaders economic leaders of Galilee, everybody was there. Now, you should know something about parties thrown at this particular time. Jews didn't celebrate birthdays back then because actually birthday parties come out of a pagan culture, and back then they were frankly quite vile and drunken. Herod's was nothing less than a drunken stag party. Then the men would eat and drink themselves into oblivion, and then they would bring out the women largely prostitutes. The dancing at these parties was sensual, vulgar, and lustful. It was foul. And incredibly, in this particular case, one of the women to dance was really just a girl, Herod's young stepdaughter. She pleased them, most notably proud stepfather, get the picture, stuffed to the gills, drunk out of his mind, enjoying lewd dancers, one of whom happens to be his stepdaughter. This blithering idiot tips the dancer too much. He's so pleased that he promises her whatever she wants, up to half the kingdom. Salome, of course, is just a young girl. She didn't know what to ask for, so she went and asked her mother. Some even suggested the wording is such here that Herodias could have orchestrated this entire event. She went and asked her mother. This was the moment that Herodias had been waiting for. All her rage and anger and bitterness spilled out, not unlike rage and anger and bitterness being spilled out on followers of Jesus today. And she asked for the head of John the Baptist. The language is such that there was an urgency. I want his head, and I want it right now. Make no delay. And by the way, the apple did not fall far from the tree. Salome goes back to Herod and says, I want John's head. And she adds, on a platter. Because of the oath he had taken, fear of losing face, Herod gave the order, and in a cold, dark dungeon, for no apparent reason, the executioner made his way to John's cell. John, of whom Jesus said, there is no other man born of woman greater than John the Baptist. He makes his way to John's cell, where he was murdered, and his head taken to a girl on a platter 
who in turn took it to her mother. Jerome, who was a contemporary of the Apostle John, one of the twelve, tells us that when the head was brought to Herodias, she spit on it and pierced his tongue with her hairpin. Why? Well, for her, this was a sign of victory. This tongue that had condemned her sinful behavior, she pierced, she had gained the ultimate victory over this man. Much like people being, Christians being beheaded today, we have gained ultimate victory. Is that right? You see, history further records when her former husband, Herod Philip II, died, Herodias encouraged her husband, Herod Antipas, Herodias was a real winner, encouraged her husband, Herod Antipas, to ask Emperor Caligula for his brother's territory. Let's expand our region. However, word had gotten back to the emperor that Herod Antipas was planning an insurrection. So not only did Herod not receive his brother's territory, but what he had was taken from him, and he was banished. He was exiled to Gaul, current France, and even worse than that, he was forced to take his wife with him. But actually, that's not the worst that happened. You see, the body they may kill. They killed John the Baptist. But Jesus said, do not fear him who has power over the body. Don't fear the persecutions coming your way. Fear him, rather, who has power over the body and the soul. Herod came to the end of his life, and because of his fear of man, because of his fear of a woman, while he had opportunity to hear John about Jesus... While he got to meet Jesus himself, he never repented. He never turned. And as a result, he never entered the kingdom. And all that awaits him is certain fearful judgment. Fear him who was able to cast the body and soul into hell. Herod had a fear. He had it in the wrong place. And so this middle story of the sandwich reminds us that there was a cost to being a follower of Jesus. In in fact, it's interesting to note that the parallel passage in in Matthew, when Jesus sends out the twelve that we looked at a couple of weeks to do, after he told them what to wear, what to take, what not to take, where to stay, where not to stay, he gave them further instructions and said words like this, Behold, I send you out as sheep. In the midst of wolves, beware of men. They will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will be brought before governors and kings, puny kings, for my sake as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. You'll be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. I want you to understand something. A disciple is not above his teacher. A slave is not above his master. It is enough for the disciple to become like his teacher, a slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, if they said that what I did, I did under the power of Satan, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. Make sure your fear is in the right place. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. 
what you heard whispered in your ear proclaimed from upon the rooftops or housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Make sure your fear is in the right place. Sparrows, two sparrows sold for a cent, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head, numbered. Don't fear. There is a cost to being a follower of Jesus. In in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says outright, we're going to be opposed. In this gospel, Mark illustrates this cost of discipleship with the martyrdom of John. There is a cost to being a follower of Jesus. That is, if you are willing to profess that you are a follower and invite others to follow as well. I close with the words of Revelation chapter 6. The Lamb broke the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long till you take care of Herod, who killed John? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until, listen, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed. How long? So the number of your brothers and sisters who are to be killed are killed. Then the day will come when the blood of the martyrs will be avenged. Then will all be made right. That day is coming. Until then, preach the gospel and suffer. Broadcast the seed. Oh, and the blood of the martyrs will become the seat of the church. Let's pray. Uh, Father John suffered. He, he was beheaded. And this is the 21st century, and we see brothers and sisters march down onto sandy beaches made to kneel because they profess Christ, and they're beheaded. Making complete the number until it's complete, uh, until the last one to be killed is killed. Filling up in our bodies that which is lacking in the affliction of Christ. Not that there's anything lacking in His finished work. But the church is expected to proclaim and suffer until He comes. Father, I, I, we know, we understand that it will, co- it will cost us to name the name of Jesus. 
Help us to do so faithfully, I pray in Christ's name.